Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as at interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I am joined by techmeister Marshall Brown and voiceover colossus Ken Krause, who will do their best to keep me in check, and by our artist of the show. Our interview for Episode 6 of Snap Sessions is with Joshua Raul Brody, musician, keyboardist, and musical accompanist for improv groups and comedy acts since the early middle 1970s. Wrestling fans from the capital city of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., ladies and gentlemen, let's get A pro wrestler gives the Democrats better sound bites with Ronnie Chiang, The Daily Show, March 1st. I love The Daily Show and have been a devoted fan ever since Jon Stewart first took the reins back in the early 2000s. I've continued to be a fan since Trevor Noah took over from Stewart in 2015. In fact, I like Noah so damn much that I just read his autobiography, Born a Crime, Stories from a South African Childhood. Great stuff. The Daily Show had a lovely little piece by their correspondent, Ronnie Chiang, a pro wrestler gives the Democrats better sound bites. Chiang interviewed a left-wing wrestler by the name of Dan Richards, who has been bringing his brand of liberal grappling to the heartland. He calls himself the progressive liberal, and he aims to confront Donald Trump, a member of the WWF Hall of Fame, in his home ring. Chiang opens the piece by pointing out that young people are on the forefront of the anti-gun movement and are pushing political change. Politicians who sit in their gilded house and senate seats funded by the NRA telling us nothing could have ever been done to prevent this. We call BS. But their leaders are either ineffectual or that most poisonous of political epithets. Boring. <sighs> He then introduces Dan Richards, the progressive liberal, who points out that most Americans would rather learn their politics from a mostly naked man rather than reading a book. Richards adds that most politicians will say anything to get elected, whereas a wrestler will say what he thinks is true, and that the level of political discussion in wrestling is higher than in politics. I grew up a wrestling fan of 1960s wrestlers, which were dominated by bad guys like Dick the Bruiser, Ray Stevens, Pat Patterson, Kenji Shibuya, and Stan the Man Stasiak, a man who obliterated opponents with his famous heart punch. Apparently, they were unable to continue the match after being slugged in the breastbone. There were oversized guys, too, giants like Haystack Calhoun and Gorilla Monsoon. 400-plus pounders who eventually led to Andre the Giant. The big guys were often friendly once out of the ring. Witness Andre the Giant getting a starring role in The Princess Bride in the 1980s. The real heroes of wrestling back then were Boba Brazil, the Jackie Robinson of wrestling, Pedro Morales, and Bruno San Martino, who was classically trained and really knew what he was doing. 1960s pro wrestling evolved into the WWF, which made sense as it was basically more of the same, except in an overkill kind of way. And the WWF gave us Trump, who came from reality TV and thus knew he would have to smash liberals into the turnbuckle in order to keep his fan base. Dan Richards, the progressive liberal, knows this and gives Charles Schumer advice on how to handle Mitch McConnell, use a reverse wrist lock, and then finally does battle with Ronnie Chiang himself. Richard wears trunks that say, dump Trump, and dries off his balls with a Confederate flag. 
Chiang climbs in the ring and initially challenges Richards on various hot-button issues, trying to get the crowd on his side. Hey, this guy wants to take away your guns. The progressive liberal responds, I don't want to take your guns away. I just want really strict background checks. He gets a surprisingly loud and positive response. At this point, the progressive liberal throws Chiang into the corner and begins stomping him. The last thing we hear Chiang saying is, welcome to the future of American politics. Toughen up, liberals. We need you to follow the lead of the progressive liberal and buff up, pencil necks. And now, our interview with musician Joshua Raul Brody. We're going to start at, by asking Joshua, when did you start playing piano? What, when were your first lessons? Well, Doug, I grew up in a very musical family. Um, everybody at one time or another um, had some professional experience, although only my sister and I um, became professional musicians. Um, but my father led a magical group uh, that met once a month, 10 months a year, for 40 years. My goodness. They performed publicly once. It was a humiliating experience, and they never went public again. They just did it for the love of making music. Uh, he played in a little recorder ensemble. He played bass in a jazz group when he was a youth before he uh, moved on to his career. My mother played a little bit of guitar and piano. My sister eventually earned her master's degree in choral conducting and is a professional choral conductor. Conductor. Uh, my brother played a little ragtime piano growing up, a little bit of clarinet, and uh, also sang in the Boston Symphony Chorus. Oh, Which is a volunteer group, but still. Uh -huh. So we all made music, and I was genetically and environmentally blessed. You know, I, did, I don't take a lot of credit for that. I'm very grateful for it. Um, so I had this musical stuff going on. So when I was three, I was starting to bang away at the piano. And by the time I was four, I was begging for piano lessons from my parents who wouldn't let me do it. Much to my dismay, I, I, I saw piano lessons as one of the rites of passage of um, becoming a grown-up and wouldn't let me. So I played the recorder for a couple of years and because of my gifts, and I call them gifts, I progressed pretty rapidly with the recorder and playing pretty complicated stuff. And then when I was eight, I finally started taking piano lessons, and for the next six years, I begged my parents to let me stop taking piano lessons. I hated them. I hated the practice. I hated the routine. I hated the discipline. I hated the boredom. Uh, and through no fault of my piano teacher, Bertha Keller was a saint, a paragon of patience, doing everything in her power to try and get me to play the piano more than one hour a week, the hour that I was at the lesson. But after six years of begging and pleading and whining and screaming, uh, my parents finally let me stop taking piano lessons at exactly the moment that I discovered the social advantages of music making. And that being rock and yeah, roll, playing, presumably. playing in a rock band, starting with the Newtonian World Machine. And this was in the Bronx? Yeah, I was mm -hmm. going to the Bronx High School of Science. And mm -hmm. My school buddies had, had bands. Played in the Newtonian World Machine and then Total Crud with two Ds in Crud. Was Total Crud uh, stylistically different from the Newtonians? No, they were both sort of three-chord Grateful Dead jam bands. Mm -hmm. um, the lead guitar player, the second lead guitar player in, in Total Crud, uh, Ross Friedman, eventually went on to much greater fame in The Dictators as Ross the Boss. 
amusing anecdote about Total Crud that maybe you can edit into that chapter. Uh, Total Crud with two Ds went to meet with a potential manager. I wasn't even at this meeting, but this story has become part of my... The manager said, oh, you guys are... You got an okay sound, but the era of the self-deprecating name is over. If you call yourselves Total Crud, you might as well call yourselves the incomparable shitheads. Everybody in the band, their eyes lit up and big light bulbs went off over their heads and that was the end of that meeting. So that's one theme running through my life is people not really understanding why I'm doing what I'm doing. Much later, I brought the Stupids, a band that we'll talk about in a few minutes, down to Los Angeles and everybody said, well, you guys are great musicians, but you're never going to make any money at this. So you went up to the Berklee School of Music in Boston. I've heard of this place. Yeah, it's uh, not spelled the same way the city in California spelled. It's named after the founder, Lee Burke, who was a uh, music entertainment lawyer. And it was not run by musicians. It was not run by educators. It was run by businessmen. Uh, it was totally profit-making machine to capitalize on the interest in, in music that the the British invasion brought to the States and every teenager wanted to pick up a guitar and learn how to play pop music. Uh, and there weren't a lot of places to study pop music, so Berkeley filled that gap. My roommate was the drummer from Total Crud, so oh, yeah. he and I were pals. There was a little rock band, uh, I think we called ourselves Coleslaw, and and we, we played, you know, Zappa tunes and Spirit and some other popular bands of the day. Um, but we were looked down upon by all the, the jazz bow guys. Um, I only lasted a year there. I, I, again, through the patience of my instructors, some information managed to get in. Uh, I learned a, a fair amount of theory. I learned chords that I'd never encountered before, and the basic rock vocabulary. I learned how to write charts. So you've done your year at Berklee School of Music. You're like a, a wisecracking 20-year-old at this point. Right? 19. Yeah, 19. And you and Margie, at mm -hmm. the time, you guys climb in a bus and you head for California. Yeah. Margie was a student at Antioch, and Antioch had this program of three months on, three months off, six months on, six months off, work um, study program. So during one of her work periods, she decided to go out to San Francisco to visit her Antioch roommate, Lori, who was from here, and I went along with her. Uh, we drove across the country, got to the Bay Area, went couch surfing for about a month, finally found an apartment in Berkeley, and broke up within a few days of having put down the deposit, found a sublet. And then when she went back to Antioch, I took her room in the uh, apartment on Castro Street. And then I met the Pointless Sisters. Up until this point, um, I had tried my hand at songwriting, and the songs that I wrote tended to be... I was making an effort to be funny and to write funny songs, because I liked funny songs growing up. I loved Stan Freeberg, I loved Alan Sherman, uh, I loved Mad Magazine, and there was a little off-Broadway show called The Mad Show, and I had the soundtrack and memorized all the songs from that. Uh, PD, I love P.D.Q. Bach. So there was all these mixtures of music and comedy that really, really, really appealed to me. Um, but I never thought I was going to do anything with it. I, like I say, I wrote a couple of songs. I come out to the Bay Area and I discover that there is actually this subculture of people that are pursuing it. I don't know if they're making a living at it, but they're out there doing it. There was Little Roger and the Goosebumps um, who did that. They're, they're notorious Stairway to Gilligan's Island thing um, and other funny th songs. There was Jane Dornacker, whose character Lila the Snake was uh, sort of an early harbinger of, point, of performance art. There were the Tubes, and there was this group, Freaky Ralph and the Pointless Sisters, who I managed to see 
at the intersection, a hotbed of performance activity right off of Union Square at the time, and Freaky Ralph and the Pointless Sisters. Ralph was... There wasn't the term outsider art at that time, but he was definitely one of them. Um, he played guitar. He dressed up sort of like Napoleon with a little tricorn hat, and his guitar was like a crappy $50 acoustic Japanese knockoff that he'd strike this horrendously out-of-tune chord and then you go oh wait a second and he'd tune the strings and he'd hit another horrendously out of tune chord and say oh that's close enough and then he would launch into these songs that most of which he wrote with this fierce passion and this faraway look in his eyes as if he could see himself on stage at winterland not as the headliner but like as middle act for the kinks uh and you could just see this written all over his face he was so caught up in this rock and roll fantasy and he swept the audience along with him and the pointless sisters were his backup singers and i introduced myself after the show i said you know i really liked what you're doing let me know if you ever need a piano player he said oh no we've got a piano player this guy jeff ross and i ran into him like completely coincidentally on the bus a few more times over the next couple of months, kept saying, you know, if you ever need a piano player. And then the third time I offered my services, he said, you know, I need a piano player this weekend. We're going to be playing the boarding house. When I got to San Francisco, the boarding house was sort of like Carnegie Hall to an aspiring pop musician. I didn't even dream I would, I, I could barely afford to buy a ticket, let alone um, perform on the stage of that place. Uh, and here I was, my first official gig in San Francisco. Was, uh, but granted, it was a benefit. It was, there was no pay. Uh, it was in an afternoon. But um, I was invited to sit in with uh, Ralph. And it went really well. And I re ended up replacing his piano player. But this was my introduction to being part of a stage show, being part of what I... I started calling comical musity because musical comedy means you know broadway and, yeah and comical musity was this other thing that's combining those elements in a different way well maybe you can describe the pointless sisters act for those of us um it sounds like the pointer sisters and there were certain mm -hmm. overlaps we we uh were inspired by some of the same sounds uh the boswell sisters and the andrews sisters the android sisters uh and we wore vintage clothing tight three-part harmonies uh um but a lot of our songs were song parodies. Instead of Cry Me a River, we did Fry Me a Liver. We did a version of Sam, You Made the Pants Too Long, where each of two of the Pointless Sisters uh, occupied one leg each of size 84 blue jeans. Um, so it was quite the sight gag. We did some Lambert Hendricks and Ross songs. We did unlikely med medleys of songs that didn't really belong together. I don't know, anything that came into our head. We were hard to pigeonhole. I remember we once brought in a director to try and shape us into something, and he kept saying, there's no real point of view. And we said, that's it, that's the point. We're pointless. <laughs> And another group that also appeared in those shows was the Rick and Ruby show, which was Brian Seff, who played the part of Rick. Monica Carroll played the part of Ruby. And they also did a lot of song parodies. Uh, when they started working, they, they had just left a, uh, a rock group, uh, a, a 50s Shanana kind of old-time rock group, leaving just the two of them with a bunch of gigs to fill. And they only had maybe five or six songs of material that the two of them knew. So they improvised a lot in between the songs to fill out their evenings. And that became their stand-up comedy. The Rick, Rick and Ruby shtick. Rick and Ruby shtick. And so I didn't know them then. 
But uh, sometime in early 77, Bermuda Schwartz, one of the Pointless Sisters, called me up. She had been walking on Union Street and peeked into a bar and saw that they were having a rock trivia contest. And one of the celebrity guests was Rick of Rick and Ruby. And one of the inebriated audience members on a Sunday afternoon was Ruby. And... Bermuda called me up and invited me to come down. And I went down and had a nice chat with Rick and Ruby, and they invited me to their show a few days later at the Palms on Polk Street. And the Palms was the place that I thought I might someday get to play. As opposed to the boarding house. As opposed house. to the boarding house, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I never thought I'd play. And I went to see the Rick and Ruby show. They were fantastic. They were everything I wanted the Pointless Sisters to be. Uh, they were performing all the time and learning while they were earning, developing their craft and developing material on stage. Pointless Sisters were much more of a hobby experience. And Rick and Ruby were alternating at that time between working as just the two of them for smaller clubs like uh, the other cafe, um, comedy clubs, Mm -hmm. and then for larger music venues like the the Palms, they would hire a full rhythm section, um, drums, guitar, and bass. And then I came along and I was small enough to fit on a small stage with them like the other and made enough noise with the piano to fill out the sound. So the three of us became an all-purpose performing unit. And you became kind of the rhythm section. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I was a quick study. I loved what they did. I didn't have any delusions of grandeur. Backup musicians were kind of impatient with the comedy uh, and wanted their moment to shine. I didn't want that. I liked I liked the skills that I had as a musician, but I liked applying them to something bigger than just music. And I mean, no offense to people that are pure musicians. If they've got the, the talent and some substance to offer in that, more power to them. I didn't. Um, what I did have was fierce passion for music as a production value for a larger project. And Rick and Ruby was it. Did they appreciate your sense of humor that way too? Uh, the ironic thing is I'm arguably the funniest person in my family. And Ruby is arguably the least funny person in her family. And yet Ruby was the funniest person in the Rick and Ruby show. Mm-hmm. Um, she was so much funnier than me and Ricky put together. Mm-hmm. Just a comic genius. It was a updated version of a old-timey vaudeville show, complete with, you know, dancing girls and tap dancer and a magician and a stand-up comedian by the name of Robin Williams. Well, a year later, Robin Williams was opening for the Pointless Sisters, and a year later, Robin Williams was in, in Los Angeles making his mark on Happy Days, and then came back to San Francisco to visit some old friends, including me. Uh, and by this time, I was with Rick and Ruby, and he saw Rick and Ruby. And several months later, he was incomprehensibly famous and about to embark on his first national tour and thought that during his tour, he wanted to do some music. And an economical way to do that would be to hire the Rick and Ruby show as the opening act and as the core of his backup band. So in 1979, we did that. We went on tour a month on, several months off, a few weeks on, several weeks off. So you basically toured North America or yeah, the United we, States? Yeah, we did a week in San Francisco, a week at the Copacabana in New York, where we were wined and dined by more celebrities than you could shake a stick at. Andy Warhol. Wow. Uh, got our picture taken with Gene Simmons of Kiss, who was not taking pictures in those days. He had his back turned to the camera. The Saturday Night Live people, just... Everybody. In Chicago, we met Diana Ross and the Jackson 5. Detroit, Boulder, Colorado. The day after we performed, we were backstage at the Doobie Brothers concert. 
So we toured with Robin Williams in 1979 and uh, appeared briefly on his first album, Reality, What a Concept. And then as a result of that, on our last day in the Universal Amphitheater, um, the producer of Mork and Mindy came to see us. Well, came to see the show, but he saw us and he decided that he'd like to do for us what Happy Days had done for Robin. So we would be a guest on the Mork and Mindy show and then uh, we would be fabulously successful and spin off our own show. It didn't work out that way. We, I saw the episode. We did do an I episode. I did see of the episode, yes, yes. which I enjoyed very much, by the way. Well, um, so we tried to uh, write our own scenario, and they kept rejecting them and rejecting them. So our appearance on Mork and Mindy did not capture the magic any more than any of our other television appearances. And we were on television a lot, but we never learned how to do it. Did that did that lead to sort of a dead end at a certain point then? Not yet. At, at that point, we were still riding high on our exposure with Robin. Um, we were courted by various talent agencies. ICM we were signed to for a while. I think CAA we were signed to for a while. We opened for other acts. Like I said, we opened for Martin Mull, uh, Bill Cosby for a little while. Hmm. Um, and then it became clear that in order to capitalize on the momentum we had to move to los angeles and brian and monica chose to do that and i chose not to so at that point then the rick and ruby became just rick and ruby right. in los angeles yeah. one thing that happened to me when i was touring with robin when we were in los angeles he introduced me to the comedy store players which was a improv group based out of the comedy store that he would sit in with when he could. And uh, I sat in with him once myself, a couple of times. Uh, I met a woman named Mary Edith Burrell, who was in an improv group called Four Babies. And they had me sit in with them on a, a rehearsal. Comedy store players came to San Francisco and I sat in with them up there. And in fact, after one of those shows, the comedy store players and Robin's new friend, Eric Idle, came to see the stupid, uh, the, the Dumb Songs Festival at the Palms. Everything ties together. So it was through those little experiences with Robin. I would play piano for his stand-up act on that first tour. And there were a few things that were I would call improv at first. But by the end of the tour, they sort of solidified into rehearsed bits. But back in Los Angeles, I got my first exposure to actually working with improv groups in that format that's familiar with improv fans now. And then when I got back to the Bay Area, I started meeting improv groups up there, like Faultline, Brian Lohman, and Greg Proops, and Michael McShane, Reed Kirk Rollman. So in 1980, Rick and Ruby are in Los Angeles. I'm sitting in with the High Wire Radio Choir, which is more of a scripted sketch comedy group. Um, but I'm also sitting in with Faultline, Femprov, Screaming Mimis from uh, Santa Cruz, Fratelli Bologna, who were mixing improv with the more classical Commedia dell'arte forms. And then shortly after that, those groups, Faultline, Fratelli Bologna, and, and Femprov, and an old Flash family, who I didn't play with, they joined forces to create what became Bats Improv, Bay Area Theater Sports. So I'd already been doing improv a little bit here and there for four or five years. I took an improv workshop in North Beach at the old Spaghetti Factory. I think John Elk was involved somehow. I don't know if he taught it or not. And the whole thing horrified me because it's a room full of stand-up comedians trying their hand at these Viola Spolin improv games, but all of them were just trying desperately to be the quickest person, land the funniest punchline, improv be, theater be damned, collaboration be damned. It was every person for him or herself. And it was just a 
horrendous experience for me. So when Fratelli Bologna called me up and said, we're going to do this thing called theater sports. And what it is, is two teams of improvisers competing for the, I wanted to run screaming into the forest. But when I showed up, I realized that this ostensible competition was just a marketing ploy. It was just the presentational form for the audience and that what was actually happening on stage was incredibly and intentionally collaborative and supportive and non-competitive. And I felt like home. I, you know, I've got the music. I've got the interest in music as supporting production value. I've got the aversion to the stand-up competition and it had everything for me. So now we're in the, uh, say, we're uh, middle, late 80s. You're working with a variety of improv groups. You've hit it off with bats. And you have a direction now with Bay Area Theater Sports, would you say or not? Yeah, mm -hmm. and also at that time in bats, we had people like Brian Lohman and Barbara Scott who were incredibly gifted song improvisers, which was an art form I wasn't aware of. I mean, I, I probably saw um, the, the committee improvise one song over the course of an evening. But these guys could do like a whole show. They could do a, a long form musical theater piece. In a variety of styles. Yeah. So I started working, accompanying them. And uh, when Brian started Pulp Playhouse, we did a, a tour up the West Coast and stopped in Ashland, Oregon to do some workshops. And Brian had me accompany his song improv workshop, and I started getting an idea of how the craft can be taught. So this is something now, um, we're heading off in direction. Joshua, give you some context here, is my favorite musical improv coach, and um, he has developed a curriculum which he has taken various places in the world, Germany, Japan, Britain, across North America, many other places. He is very good at getting across the basics of you two can sing a song from scratch. And I think this, so this is the beginning of where it started for you is working with bats and developing a curriculum. Right, it was moving ahead in little uh, baby increments. The thing I love about my career is I don't think there's ever been a single thing that I've done that I set out. You know what I want to be when I grow up? I want to be a song improviser. You know what I want to be when I grow up? I want to be a teacher. You know what I want to be when I grow up? I want to tour with Rob. You know, all of these things were things that I just stumbled into and that by pursuing the things that I love, I got better at the skills that I needed to have in order to move to this next step that I didn't foresee, which is so not the way I thought the world worked. I thought you figure out what you want to be when you grow up, and then you go to school and you study what you need to learn in order to accomplish that. Those and are then, the things we were taught. Yeah. <laughs> and then once you've studied all those things and you've learned all those things, then you become that thing. And that's, my life has been anything but that. The thing about improv in the Bay Area at around that time, late 70s, early to mid 80s. After the committee went away, you had a lot of people that really liked comedy and really liked quick thinking, but they were stand-up comedians and they were approaching it from a stand-up point of view. So groups like uh, Spaghetti Jam and Papaya Juice and National Theater of the Deranged had a certain rhythm and a certain energy and a certain repetitiveness. They found stuff that worked and would go back to it reliably because it was a reliable laugh getter. The Bats folks were drawn together with a shared 
antipathy towards that approach and more important, they were interested in storytelling. I think this is a value that they got from studying with Keith. This would be Keith, Keith Johnstone, Johnstone, the founder of, of uh, International Theatre Sports. Interested in na- building narrative, interested in understanding how narrative works, interested in creating a collaborative and supportive environment on stage, not interested in gagging, not interested in the quick punchline. And that shared passion, and again, like Rick and Ruby, a lot of time on stage led to a certain mastery that allowed them to get to a point where they could say, okay, we've got these skills. We've got this shared aesthetic. What else can we do with it other than the short form blackout kind of improv stuff that you see on like Whose Line Is It Anyway? Mm -hmm. And that's where, as far as I understand from the history of improv around the world the seeds of long form experimentation i will take i will share that credit with the chicago work done in herald mm-hmm. um but Harold is is, is a, a more freeform variety approach it was here that we really did some groundbreaking work in sustained narrative long form it was a few years ago that i stumbled in the same way that I've stumbled on other things in my career, on the theme of my life's work. We've mentioned that I, I teach song improvisation, and I love the way you framed it, that give people who are scared of singing the courage to sing. Because that's one great gift of, of song improvisation, is you can't mess it up. When you're singing a song that actually exists, it's possible to sing it the right way it's possible to sing it the wrong way and people will get upset with you even if you wrote the song if you don't sing it the way it's supposed to go and when you're improvising a song there the way you improvise it is the way it goes so that's one aspect of song improvisation that's a gift to the shy and the fearful everybody knows happy birthday and everybody knows a beatles song and most people not all people but most people think that they can't sing or that they're not supposed to sing or they're not allowed to sing or they need something other than what they've got to sing. Nobody says to themselves, well, I don't have a Pulitzer Prize, so I shouldn't write an email. Nobody says, I don't have cordon blue training, so I shouldn't make an omelet or a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But so many people go, well, I don't have singing lessons or I don't have natural talent, so I shouldn't sing. And I think that is a tragedy. Music has been this wonderful gift that I was just it was just dumped on my head, and I wish everybody was as lucky as I am. So I've found opportunities, and haven't identified them as that until after the fact, but I've found these opportunities to share that gift with other people. And um, it's transformational. And the notion of somebody who's afraid to get up and get in front of somebody and is afraid of their own voice and then see them laugh like a child after they have completed Mm -hmm. a song is just a wonderful thing. So in that sense, I am really looking forward to the big book of musical improv. But even better, if you have a chance to be in one of Joshua's workshops, you would be silly, just plain ludicrously silly to have missed it. It's for everybody. Finally, Mr. Brody, I know that you and I have uh, talked over the years about a variety of musical comedy. You mentioned, mu- what is it, musity? Comical musity. Well, Doug, the first couple of names that come to mind are the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, <laughs> Frank Zappa. I've been admiring Zappa since 
almost the beginning. I think I got turned on to him when his third album came out. We're only in it for the money. He was just so unafraid to wallow in humor. And he didn't worry about not being taken seriously. He, he worried about it personally. But that didn't stop him from doing things that were not taken seriously by the musical establishment. Irreverent is the word. And... On Beyond Irreverent is fearless. And those were things that I really admire about anybody that takes these seemingly disparate things of serious music and serious comedy and throws them together in interesting ways. So each song is unique and individual. And I think the same can be said for humor in music, that each stab is, is its own unique little island. And I really admire that. The Bonzos started out as a uh, bunch of art school dropouts who were really enamored of 20s and 30s trad jazz and novelty songs. And then eventually they evolved an approach of their own. Oh, they were influenced by the Dadaists as well. But they didn't sound like anybody else unless they were very intentionally doing a parody of the Bonzo's legendary uh, Canyons of Your Mind has the, what everyone agrees is the world's worst guitar solo ever recorded. I like the Bonzo's, I like the Zappa, I like some of the Beach Boys middle period uh, weirdness. I got into Waits a little bit, Tom Waits. Again, he's a, a follow your own muse to hell with convention kind of approach. One of my uh, final thought, because you've always been fun this way, making connections across time. You've given me a line which I've used over numerous occasions when I say, have you ever heard Spike Jones?" And people go, Spike Jones, who's he? And I use your line. Oh, some people call him the Frank Zappa of the 1940s. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Joshua Raul Brody line, so. Thank you for remembering it, I don't. So at any rate, this uh, brings us, do you have any last-minute wisecracks or uh, follow this in your life or type thing to say? I'll just tell you my favorite joke of the week. Please. Uh, this, we're at a funeral, and this guy goes up to the grieving widow and says, can I just say one word? She says, sure, go ahead. So the guy walks up to the podium, leans into the microphone, says, plethora. And then he steps down from the podium and walks over to the grieving widow who says, that means a lot. <laughs> thank you very much, Joshua. It's a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. And I thank you for, for thank being part of Snap Sessions. Thanks for listening. The Crabby White People's Party. Among the most frequently expressed reasons why Donald Trump won the Electoral College in 2016, the most consistently pounded is that the oversized reality TV star tapped into working-class white people's anxiety of economic dislocation. The orange-haired quasi-fascist ostensibly expressed enough solidarity with economically nervous voters in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan to squeak out a slim electoral victory in those states in spite of losing the national vote by two 2.8 million. But the reality seems to be that his voters were motivated more by racial resentment rather than economic distress. In study after study noted here in The Nation magazine, The Washington Post, Vox.com, and The Atlantic Monthly, the underlying reason for Trump's electoral win is white resentment and fear of other racial and ethnic groups. The Republican Party, represented by Trump, and the sycophantic Republican majority in Congress has effectively become the Krabby White People's Party. Let's call it the CWPP for short. You kids get off my lawn! 
According to academic Thomas Wood, writing in the Washington Post in a chart and graph-filled article on April 17, 2017, racism motivated voters more than authoritarianism. Wood goes on to say, finally, the statistical tool of regression can tease apart the 2016 vote after controlling for education, race, ideology, and age. Since 1988, we've never seen such a clear correspondence between vote choice and racial perceptions. Racial attitudes made a bigger difference in a Trump. Writing in The Nation on May 8, 2017, journalists Sean McElwee and Jason McDaniel come to a similar conclusion. Quote, new data provide a compelling answer to this vexing question. Economic anxiety didn't make people vote Trump. Racism did. Unquote. In our models, racial attitudes towards blacks and immigration are the key factors associated with support for Trump. Both racial resentment and black animosity are significant predictors of Trump's support among white respondents, independent of partisanship, ideology, education levels, and the other factors included in the model. The effect of immigration attitudes for white people is even stronger than anti-black attitudes. Get off my lawn. And Vox.com's German Lopez, writing in December of 2017, tells us... Contrary to what some have suggested, white millennial Trump voters were not in more economically precarious situations than non-Trump voters. Fully 86% of them reported being employed, a rate similar to non-Trump voters. And they were 14% less likely to be low income than white voters who did not support Trump. Employment and income were not significantly related to that sense of white vulnerability. As he put it, economic anxiety isn't driving racial resentment, rather racial resentment is driving economic anxiety. Of course, to students of American history, this should come as no surprise. Richard Nixon... I'm not a crook. ...cynically worked to capitalize on racial anxiety in the South during his 1968 presidential campaign. Let's remember, this followed upon LBJ's passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Kevin Phillips was a famed Republican political strategist at the time, crystallizing these ideas in his famous The Emerging Republican Majority, which came out in 1969 and argued that the Southern states would keep the Republicans winning presidential elections based on racial politics. The trick was to be sly about it. As Nixon's chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman once noted, Nixon emphasized that you have to face the fact that the whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognized this while not appearing to. The key was to emphasize states' rights and law and order positions, thus avoiding obvious racial words, but effectively playing dog whistle politics. Ronald Reagan ran up huge Southern majorities in the 1980s by complaining about welfare queens, busing, and affirmative action, all dog whistle code words. As Lee Atwater, a Reagan, George H.W. Bush Republican, noted in the 80s, You start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts your backfire. So you say stuff like uh, force busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now, you're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. And subconsciously, maybe that is part of it. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that if it is getting that abstract and that coded, uh, that, that, we're, that we're doing away with the racial problem one way or the other. Uh, you follow me? Because obviously sitting around saying uh, we want to cut taxes, we want to cut this, and we want is much more abstract than, than even the busing thing. 
and a hell of a lot more abstract than never knew. No part of the U.S. is immune to racism or exploitation of ethnic differences, but the South has been consistently ready to fall for overt appeals to rigid old attitudes. A history of reactionary politics has had a lot to do with it. In Colin Woodard's American Nations, he discusses these peculiar attitudes. Opposition to modernism, liberal theology, and inconvenient scientific discoveries occurred in pockets across the continent in late 19th and early 20th centuries, but only in the Dixie Block did it represent the dominant cultural position. In the cultural wars that have followed, southern states have been strongholds of biblical inerrancy. The elimination of barriers between church and states, teaching children religious rather than scientific explanations for the origins and nature of the universe, maintaining legal, political, and social restraints against homosexuality, civil rights and interracial dating, and of preventing the secularization of society. Sadly, many of these attitudes linger in contemporary American politics, most especially among Trump voters. Study after study shows that crabby white people are pliable to race baiting and dog whistle politics. The Fox propaganda machine has had a generation to work its dark magic and was successful at demonizing the relatively moderate Barack Obama, although it managed to ignore Trump's more heinous misdeeds. Listen to Atlantic Magazine from last December. The president's supporters have stood by him, even as he has evinced every quality they described as a deal-breaker under Obama. Conservatives attacked Obama's lack of faith. Trump is a thrice-married libertine who has never asked God for forgiveness. They accused Obama of being under malign foreign influence. Trump eagerly accepted the aid of a foreign adversary during the election. They accused Obama of genuflecting before Russian President Vladimir Putin. Trump has refused to even criticize Putin publicly. Conservatives said Obama was lazy. Trump gets bored and likes to watch TV. They said Obama's golfing was excessive. As of August, Trump had spent nearly a fifth of his presidency golfing. They said Obama was a self-obsessed egomaniac. Trump is unable to broach topics of public concern without boasting. Republicans said Obama was racially divisive. Trump has called Nazis very fine people. Conservatives portrayed Obama as a vapid celebrity. Trump is a vapid celebrity. So, apparently a good portion of the U.S. is that easy to dupe. If you're white, Republicans assume you must be crabby about people of other colors getting away with things. President Trump is betting on the politics of resentment. As Chris Christopherson and John Prine sang back in 1972, it's important for some people to be able to look down on other people. Some folks hate the whites who hate the blacks who hate the Klan. Most of us hate anything we don't understand. Problems with Plastic, National Geographic, June 2018. This month's National Geographic is devoted to plastic. We made it, we depend on it, we're drowning in it. The emphasis is on the last phrase. 
We have created a plastic disaster and have apparently altered the planet and its oceans forever. The statistics come hard and heavy from the first page of the article. Although plastic wasn't invented until the late 19th century and production only took off around 1950, we still have about 9.2 billion tons of the stuff to deal with. Of that, more than 6.9 billion tons have become waste. Of that waste, a staggering 6.3 billion tons have never made it to the recycling bin. More than 40% of plastic is used just once and then tossed. The working life of a plastic bag is 15 minutes. Some 9 million tons of plastic end up in the ocean each year. Humans, we've got a problem. As plastic is pouring into the oceans around the world, it is also breaking into smaller pieces, now called microplastics. Scientist Richard Thompson of Plymouth University in England has shown that small creatures called amphipods devour pieces of plastic bags, shredding plastic bags into as many as 1.75 million microscopic fragments. On some beaches of the beautiful Big Island of Hawaii, as much as 15% of the sand is actually made up of grains of microplastic. Thompson points out that fish samples show microplastics in the guts of more than one-third of them. Granted, we have benefited hugely because of plastic. Nat Geo pointed out that the Allies used nylon parachutes and lightweight plastic airplane parts in World War II. Plastic parts have eased travel into space and revolutionized medicine. They've made cars lighter and more fuel efficient, and they're cheap. That's a big part of the present problem. Now, roughly 40% of the now more than 448 million tons of plastic produced each year is disposable. Much of it used as packaging intended to be discarded within minutes after Purchase. Production has grown at such a breakneck pace that virtually half the plastic ever manufactured has been made in the past 15 years. And much of this is now made in Asia, where garbage collection systems may be underdeveloped or non-existent. In 2010, according to one estimate, half the world's mismanaged plastic waste was generated by just five Asian countries. China, Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam, and Sri Lanka. Of course, we do recycle some of it. But although America is a big part of the problem, this is a worldwide dilemma at this point. The basic problem is this. Human beings act like pigs. <laughs> and they treat their environment with disdain. We have an obligation to keep our planet clean and give our kids a future. What can we do toward this end? The most heartening thing about the plastic waste problem is the recent explosion of serious of scattered efforts to address it. A partial list of the good news since 2014 would include Kenya joining a growing list of nations that have banned plastic bags, imposing steep fines and jail time on violators. France said it would ban plastic plates and cups by 2020. Bans on plastic exfoliating microbeads and cosmetics take effect this year in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and four other countries. The industry is phasing them out. There's a second way industry could help. It could pony up. A worldwide tax of a penny on every pound of plastic resin manufactured has been proposed. The tax would raise roughly $6 billion a year that could be used to finance garbage collection systems in developing nations. The idea has yet to catch on. In the fall of 2017, though, a group of scientists revived the concept of a global fund. The group called for an international agreement patterned after the Paris Climate Accord. Norway has shown how far recycling of plastic bottles, a big part of beach trash, can go. It now recovers 97% of them. Its trick? Deposits as high as 2.5 kroner, 32 cents, and machines found at most supermarkets that ingest bottles and spit out refunds. 
There is fresh energy and spirit being offered to bring us in tune with our planet. Young Dutch inventor Boyan Slot has developed a floating platform designed to suck in plastic garbage and clean up the North Pacific garbage giant. Like the Pixar robot WALL-E, Slat's device is designed to clean up the floating plastic while saving the waste materials to be recycled. A few years ago, Slat won the Champions of the Earth Award from the UN. Boyan Slot is 23 years old. In this month's issue, National Geographic suggests six things you can do and feel no pain. One, give up plastic bags. Take your own reusable ones to the store. A trillion plastic shopping bags are used worldwide every year and 100 billion in the United States alone. That's almost one per American per day. The average Dane, in contrast, goes through four single-use bags per year. Denmark passed the first bag tax in 1993. Number two, skip straws. Unless you have medical needs, and even then you could use paper ones. Americans toss 500 million plastic straws every day, or about 1.5 per person. Three, pass up plastic bottles. Invest in a refillable water bottle. Some come with filters if you're worried about water quality. A handful of cities, including Bundaloon, Australia and San Francisco, have banned or partially banned bottled water. But around the world, nearly a million plastic beverage bottles are sold every minute. Number four, avoid plastic packaging. Buy bar soap instead of liquid. Buy in bulk. Avoid produce sheathed in plastic. And while you're at it, give up plastic plates and cups. The French are partially banning this stuff. Five, recycle what you can. Even in rich countries, recycling rates are low. Globally, 18% of all plastic is recycled. Europe manages 30%, China 25. The United States only nine. Number six, don't litter. The Ocean Conservancy has run beach cleanups for 30 years. Of the top 10 types of trash they find, the only non-plastic item is glass bottles. Worldwide, 73% of beach litter is plastic. Cigarette butts, the filters, bottles and caps, food wrappers, grocery bags, polystyrene containers. In 2016, the Conservancy collected 9,200 tons of trash in 112 countries, around a thousandth of what enters the ocean each year. We could throw out the rascals who presently are running this country and other non-thinking nations. We have a president who pulled us out of the Paris Climate Change Accords and who will do nothing to deal with plastic. Let's change the paradigm and get rid of the garbage politicians who prostitute for polluters. Let's recycle, reconsider, and find new products that are Earth-friendly. To paraphrase environmentalist Jose Arguez, On Spaceship Earth, the wrong crew is in command, and it's time for a mutiny. There's this stuff that's everywhere. I bet you can see it here and over there. It comes from deep below the ground. But we spend a lot of time just spreading it round. I'm talking about plastic. It's not fantastic. Because it never, ever goes away. Don't want to use it. We've got to lose it. Because otherwise it'll be here to stay. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. I want to thank my longtime friend, musician Joshua Raul Brody, for being our guest. And I want to thank our tech meister, Marshall Downtown Brown, who makes it all sound better. And thanks to our voiceover talents, Christine Samus, and all-around jack-of-all-trades, Ken Krause. Don't be an airhead. 
Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity. Foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. 